0: Man, something about that video just says Merry Christmas. Makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, right? Makes you just wanna hug somebody, right? Well, regardless of how that video might make you feel, I believe that what Andy Williams said is true when he sang in the song. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? I mean, Christmas Eve is one week away and that's something to be excited about, but it's also college basketball season, right? I mean, any, any college basketball fans in the room? I know that you are because we're in Indiana and that's just what we do. Are there any rabid, basketball fans in the room. And by rabid, like if your team wins, you'd run for president. If your team doesn't win, you just want to hide in your basement, right? I tend to be one of those fans. In fact, it came out yesterday in the IU Notre Dame game. I have emotionally removed myself from the Hoosiers' success, but when they won that game, one of my sons said, wow, dad, like I was, I was, I was all into it, right? Now I have a neighbor who understands why this is a great time of the year. He's meshed basketball on Christmas because he did not decorate his house, He decorated his basketball goal with chasing lights. If you were to drive by this guy's house, I tried to get a picture to show you chasing lights all over the goal, and there is a ball suspended right over the rim, like it's getting ready to go in. I mean, this guy understands basketball in Indiana, right? And it doesn't matter which team you cheer for, we just love basketball, right? Well, I recently discovered just this last week a basketball tradition here in Indiana that has to do with Christmas and it takes place in the small town of Upland, Indiana, which is the home of Taylor University. If you're not familiar with Upland, it's about an hour northeast of here. And Taylor is a small liberal arts Christian school with a total enrollment of about 2100 students. And just to give you perspective on the size of Taylor University, there are approximately 25 high schools in Indiana that are larger than Taylor University. Schools like Carmel, Noblesville, and Fishers, right? So, needless to say, they are not known for being a college basketball powerhouse. However, there is a tradition that has started that's really ramped up over the last several years at Taylor University. It's known as the Silent Night Game. And if you've never seen the Silent Night Game, you really need to check this out. It, every year there's a viral video that goes out. It was a featured story uh, on ESPN in 2015. And here's what happens at the Silent Night game. It takes place on the last Friday of the fall semester every year. So this year it took place on Friday night, December the 8th. And all the students show up standing room only in the 2100 seat arena. And an Indy Star writer said that it looks like Halloween on steroids. There are kids dressed up like everything imaginable. and, And one of the things that they dressed up as this year was a box of McDonald's french fries. They are going absolutely crazy. There's Ninja Turtles and Jedi's. Everybody's decked out in their gear and they're hyper like toddlers that have had too many M&Ms. They're just hyper and wild, which is you expect when you go to a college basketball game, right? But the moment the referee throws the basketball up in the air to start the game, something magical happens. Because the entire arena goes completely silent. And the only noise that you can hear are the squeaking of the shoes, you can hear the coaches coaching and the players playing, but the crowd does not make a noise until Taylor scores their 10th point of the game. Now, instead of describing this to you, I thought maybe you'd like to see it for yourself. Now, before you see this, I want you to know there's still 15 minutes left in the first half when you see what you're getting ready to see. Go ahead, guys. Jake needs just one point to break the silence. Fires. thinking about buying season tickets to Taylor Taylor University basketball just so I can take my family to that game every year. After all the madness, the students go to the side, the game resumes, and they sing Silent Night. Where else are you going to find five guys dressed like Spider-Man, a guy dressed like Tom Hanks from the movie where he's stranded on the island, all just interlocking arms singing Silent Night? It's not going to happen anywhere else, but it happens at Taylor University. Now, you're like me, and you're probably thinking, why the 10th point? No one knows. That's part of the mystique of the mystery, right? So regardless, isn't that just it's a really cool tradition. But here's the thing. Last week, we started our Christmas series that we're entitling Good News. And it comes from the middle of the Christmas story in Luke 2.10, where an angel comes and says, I bring you good news of great joy that is for all the people. And last week, we talked about this message of good news, that, that God left heaven and came to this earth in the form of a baby known as Jesus. That's the good news. And so this week, we're asking the question, well, what does that have to do with great joy? What would be so good about that that it would, the response would be great joy? And so let me ask you a question. <clears throat> when you think of joy or great joy, what comes to your mind? If you're a sports fan, maybe you picture a scene like that where your team wins on a last-second shot. If you are an IU fan, you remember a few years ago when Christian Watford hit a last-second three-pointer when they were playing in Bloomington to beat the number-one-ranked Kentucky Wildcats, Okay. Who's your fans? Anybody remember this? What happened? Everybody lost their mind. They rushed the court. Jesus almost returned to the earth that day. The joy was so great. He almost couldn't restrain himself, right? So if you're a sports fan, maybe that's what you think of. But maybe you're thinking, ah, sports, who cares? Well, my friend Ben Kraus isn't into sports, but great joy for him would be dropping a big buck in the middle of the woods during deer season. Or maybe you like to shop, and so great joy is finding that perfect gift that you're going to give at Christmas, or better yet, finding the perfect parking spot when you're shopping for all those gifts, right? Maybe for you, though, great joy hits a little closer to home, and you think, oh, great joy was the day that I was married, or the day that my kids were born. I have one friend that said he experiences great joy every time he watches his two-year-old daughter look at the Christmas tree when he plugs it in. Her face just lights up if you're a student, this time of the year, you have great joy. Why? Because school is done, right? You get a few weeks break. I got somebody waving up here in the front row. They're excited, right? If you are a parent of school-aged children, you experience great joy when they go back to school in January, right? It's back to the rhythm. Well, I got to experience some great joy this last week. I finished my last paper for my master's degree. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm gonna be honest, I appreciate your applause. I hated every moment of it. Every moment of it. It was 42 pages long and had a three page bibliography. Those were the standards, okay? And I hated every moment of it. Ask my wife and kids, they would tell you I complained about the whole thing. But the moment I submitted it, I heard angels singing somewhere. (laughs) I mean, the hallelujah chorus broke out. I didn't have to go worry about school anymore. But here's the thing, we could go around the room and I could, I could get a microphone and say, hey, tell me about great joy. What's great joy for you? What's great joy for you? And we could come up with different examples like that. But here's what I find interesting. Joy had a lot to do, had a big part to play in that first Christmas 2,000 years ago, maybe even more so than you and I And so we're going to jump into the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. And Luke chapter 2 starts off in verses 1 through 5 in a very familiar way. You probably know this. There's this young couple named Mary and Joseph, and they're getting ready to have a baby, but there's a census that's been decreed, and they live in northern Israel up in Nazareth, and they have to travel to Joseph's, Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem. Now, I've never been to Israel. I would love to go to Israel one day, but I thought, I wonder if Google Maps could map out a walking path for me. And sure enough, this week I got online and I found that. If you want to know what it looks like to walk, that's probably how you would walk to get there. Now, this is probably not the same route that Mary and Joseph took, but here's what we know about this journey. It was nearly 100 miles in very hilly terrain, mountainous terrain, and it's believed that it would have taken eight to 10 days to make that journey. But thankfully for Mary and Joseph, Mary was very, very pregnant. Ladies, can you imagine making that journey, being incredibly pregnant, either on foot or riding a donkey? That just sounds miserable to me. And guys, if you've ever traveled with a woman that's pregnant, you know there are bathroom breaks every 15 feet. So I don't think it was eight to 10 days for them. It was more like eight to 10 months. It took forever for them to get where they were going. We don't know how long they were gone. We don't know when they got there. We don't know how long they were in town. But look at what happens in verse six. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them in the inn. Now, we're familiar with those details, Right? And according to Luke, there wasn't a lot of fanfare 2,000 years ago when Jesus entered into our world for the very first, first time. And other than the sound of a young mother giving birth to her firstborn, or the whimpers of this little baby resting and lying in a feeding trough, it was a silent night for the rest of the world. But this wasn't just any baby. I mean, an angel had appeared to Mary and Joseph separately and said, that baby is God's son. And if that's true, you would think that there would be like a welcoming committee. You would think someone would say, let's throw a shower. Let's have a shower for you. Or at least somebody would show up with a balloon that says, it's a boy, right? You have to celebrate somehow. This was God's son and no one was going to know. But just like any proud new daddy, God wasn't going to let the birth of his son go unannounced for too long. Look at verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, I'm just curious. How many of you have ever played the role of a shepherd in a Christmas play? I have. They only let me play that because I couldn't talk if I was a shepherd. I just had to hold a stick, right? And you probably went and got your dad's bathrobe and then a towel from the bathroom and a stick from the yard and voila, instant shepherd. It's the easiest costume ever. And you stand there on the stage and that's what shepherds do, right? You can't find a nativity scene without finding some shepherds nearby. And Luke tells us on that first Christmas night, there were some shepherds watching over their sheep in a nearby field. And in the same way that no one would have ever expected the Messiah to be be God becoming a man, in the same way no one would have expected him to be born as a baby and laid in a feeding trough. No one would have expected the good news of his arrival to be shared with a bunch of shepherds before anyone else. And here's why. In those days, shepherds were social outcasts. The nature of their work forced them to be away from people. But get this. Because of Jewish ceremonial law, the work that they did made them spiritually and religiously unclean. They were raising the sheep that everyone else would use to make a sacrifice to be right with God, and the work that they did made them unclean. People could not interact with them, which is kind of depressing when you think about it, right? Now, we get a little bit of this in the Old Testament in David's story. uh, The prophet Samuel went to the house of Jesse and said, I am here to anoint one of your sons to be the next king of Israel. And Jesse invited all of his sons in and lined them up, but he did not think to call in his youngest son, who was a shepherd that was out in the field. Even as a father, Jesse thought, "Ah, he's just a young shepherd. He he could never be king. So you kind of get the picture that being a shepherd was a necessary job, but it really wasn't a desired career. It wasn't something that little boys grew up wanting to be. And so if you look back in Luke's story, we're not really sure how this played out, but I want you to picture a bunch of roughneck, good old boys sitting down by a fire, at the end of a long long day of chasing their sheep. They're kind of relaxing for the day. They're laying on their backs. They're looking up at the stars. They've got their hands behind their head for a pillow, and they're laying there in silence. And who knows what they're thinking about? Maybe they were wishing that they had made more of their life. Maybe they were wondering, am I always going to be an outcast? Will I always be chasing sheep? Or maybe they were wondering, as they laid there in silence that night, mean, is there anything better for me or is this, just, is this just gonna be life? Well, we don't know what they were thinking about, but we know what happened next. Look at this, verse nine says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were, what's the word? Terrified. We think, oh, that might be cool. No, they were terrified because an angel was standing there, a warrior of light. And not only that, it says, the glory of the Lord was shining Around them Now, it is believed that this is the bright light that would surround the presence of God himself. In the Old Testament, this was described as a bright light or a burning fire that appeared to the Israelites in the desert that led them from Egypt to the Promised Land. I want you to picture the brightest light you have ever seen and magnify it by a million. I mean, just, they're just kind of standing there looking like this. And look at what the angel says to them. Do not be afraid, I bring you. Here it is, good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then look at what happens next. Verse 13 says, suddenly a great company of, of the heavenly host appeared with the angel. Praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom His favor rests. First, there was just one angel. Now, the entire sky is lit up with an army of angels, and they are praising God. Now, think back to the video that we watched at Taylor University. I heard you laugh and I saw you nod, and that would be fun to be there, right? That's exciting. You probably had a little bit of an adrenaline pump, thinking, Oh, that would be really cool to experience. That doesn't even hold a candle to what was happening in front of these shepherds on that night. And Luke doesn't say this, but I have to imagine that those angels were singing. This was the first Christmas. I think they were singing the first Christmas carol. You know why? Because the theologian Buddy the Elf says the best way to spread Christmas cheer is? Singing loud for all all to hear. You know that's not actually in Scripture, but we know it like Scripture, right? I think those angels were singing. They were excited. And I want you to picture what would it be like to be a shepherd to see that. We don't know for sure, but we think it may have looked like this. (laughs) That was the look on their face. They were frozen like that for two years. They didn't know what to do. Actually, that's extreme joy. It says that the shepherds were terrified, but maybe that's what the angels looked like when they were delivering this message. But I think that there's something that we can learn from these angels, and it's this. The angels expressed joy at the arrival of the Messiah. They expressed joy at the arrival of the Messiah. Look back to verse 14. They sang glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace to men. Because the Prince of Peace had just been born in a town nearby. Now, here's something that's really important for us to remember. Angels and humans are alike in that we are both created beings. God created humans. God has created angels. But as humans, we're different because God has made us in the image and likeness of God himself. And while angels are perfect and holy, 1 Peter 1.12 says that they long to look into the things of God. And I have to imagine this whole God becoming man in the flesh, being born as a baby and laid in a feeding trough. I have to imagine angels were scratching their heads saying, I don't get it. And maybe one of them said, I'll take a hit for the team here. Hey, almighty God, we have a question for you. Just, just hold on. I got a question. Are you sure you want, have you seen these people? They're really not very nice to you. They don't listen to you very well. Are you sure you want to become one of them? I mean, that seems like a fair question if you're an angel wondering, God, what are you up to here? But regardless of what they understood about God's plan, they came to the shepherds that night with a message of great joy, proclaiming glory to God and peace to all men. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of those shepherds. This is really good news. You are an outcast. You can't interact with people. People look down on you because of what you do. But angels have come to deliver a message to you personally. An army of angels is talking to you. That's really good news. That probably would raise your self-esteem just a little bit, wouldn't it? But this was good news for all of Israel. Because for 400 years, God had been silent. There had not been a peep. Meaning that when the book of Malachi was written in the Old Testament and finished... From that point until this point in time, God hadn't said a word to Israel. And during that time period, a lot had changed in Israel. From 400 B.C. to about 25 A.D., they went from being controlled by the Persians to conquered by the Greeks. And around 63 B.C., the Roman Empire took control of Israel, and they were known for um, ruling by terror. And through all of this, if you were a Jew, you'd be asking a couple of questions. God, where are you? God, have you forgotten about us? Where's this Messiah that you promised to send so long ago? But now, after 400 years, God was breaking his silence, and he was sending angels to peasants like Mary and Joseph and a priest named Zechariah, and now he's revealing himself through these angels. He's sending this message of joy to these shepherds out in a field. And, and those angels gave those shepherds two very important pieces of information. First, they said, the Messiah has been born as a baby nearby, number one. Number two, you'll find him lying in a manger. Now, when you and I look at a nativity scene, we're used to seeing a baby laid on a bed of hay. Is there any mother in this room that likes the idea of their baby, their new baby laying on something that an animal has eaten out of? I I just can't imagine how tired Mary and Joseph must have been to do that. But if you were a shepherd, you would think, well, I feed my sheep in a manger. That's a really weird place. And then maybe it hit. Oh, wait a minute. This Messiah, he hasn't been born in the palace of the powerful. He hasn't been born into the home of someone wealthy. He's been born to common peasants. That's me. That's us. And look at how those shepherds responded in verse 15. It says, When the angels had left them and gone back into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. So first we see the angels were expressing joy at the arrival of the Messiah. Here we see the shepherds responded in joy after meeting the Messiah. After meeting that baby... They responded with joy. Look at verse 17. It says, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said. This is a bunch of outcasts running around saying, You'll never believe what happened. And people were freaking out, and the the news was spreading. They had seen the angels, they had found the baby, and in joy, they could not keep quiet. They had to share what they had experienced. But it's interesting to note that those shepherds were actually not the first humans that got to respond in joy at being in the presence of Jesus. If you flip back to Luke chapter 1, Luke records a story of the first time Jesus' mother goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. Both ladies were pregnant, and as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, as soon as Mary walked into their house and said, Hello, Elizabeth. Look at what Elizabeth says in in Luke 1, 43 and 44. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, that baby would become a man whose name would be John. He would be known as John the Baptist, And he got to experience the privilege of being the person that baptized Jesus. And when he baptized Jesus, Scripture tells us that God spoke from heaven and said, hey, that's my son right there, John. Can you imagine what it would be like to be John? But think about this. Before John was ever born, he leapt in his mother's womb because he was in the presence of Jesus. So the angels expressed joy at the arrival of the Messiah. The shepherds responded in joy after meeting the Messiah. And if we believe that these stories are true, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, then we should all be full of joy, right? I mean, after all, the Israelites had waited for 400 years and God had been silent. We've had Jesus for 2,000 years. Who wants to grab a microphone and tell me how joyful your life is right now? any volunteers? That's a really convicting question, isn't it? And I'm going I'm to let you into my personal life and let you know that this week, as I've been preparing for this sermon, yesterday, I had an awful day. I couldn't tell you why. I knew I was going to be standing right here preaching to you about joy. I had a terrible day outside of Indiana beating Notre Dame. I was excited. And then I went right back down. And, and it's so convicting because I, I get excited about and happy about all kinds of things. But when it comes to joy, I get really frustrated at normal, everyday things that don't go my way. Instead of rejoicing in the birth of my Savior. In fact, this is a true story. I told this first service when my wife was here. When my wife learned that I was going to be the one preaching on joy, she said, are you sure they couldn't find somebody else to do that? I said, I don't know. They asked me to do it. I agreed. This is the last message I want to give. I don't think of myself as a joyful person, especially at home. But thankfully, as I've been preparing this week, I've learned a very valuable lesson that's evident in the response of the angels and in the shepherds. Their joy did not come from something. Their joy was rooted in someone Andy Stanley is a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, and he summarizes this best by saying that true joy is more about a who than a what. And so maybe this Christmas season, as we celebrate the good news of great joy for all people, we would be wise to join the angels and the shepherds in Luke 2 by remembering that true joy is about a who, not a what. True joy is about a who and not a what. What? And for those of us that believe the story of Christmas is true, our who is a man named Jesus, who we believe is God in the flesh, who we believe left the comforts of heaven and came to live here on this earth to experience everything that you and I experienced. You name one part of Jesus's life that was easy. I can't find one. That's our who. And we believe that he didn't just live, but that he died a horrible death so that you and I could confess him and be made right with God as our heavenly father. And so if you're like me and you, you find it hard to find joy on a regular basis, much less than this Christmas season, maybe we need to step back and say, am I celebrating a who or a what? Because making Christmas a what is sure to steal your joy. I am 39 years old. I think for the last 39 years, at some point I have celebrated a what, and there is always a letdown in celebrating a what. But making Christmas about a who, a very specific who, gives us everlasting joy. In fact, if we can remember to make Christmas about the who that it was intended to be about in the first place, we can have great joy because here's the thing, guys, we have something that those first shepherds did not have. The shepherds got to go and see an actual physical baby lying in a manger. They got to see him. But there's no way that those shepherds could have ever imagined that that baby would grow to be a man. And at 33 years old, he would endure the most horrific torture that you and I could ever imagine. Scripture says he was marred beyond recognition. They had no idea that he not only was living, but he would die. They had no clue that he would rise from the dead. But we have the advantage of knowing that Jesus came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose from the dead, and guess what? That's not the end of his story, is it? If everything that we believe to be true about Jesus is true, death isn't the end. In fact, after his resurrection, Jesus promised he promised that he would return to this earth one day. In Matthew twenty-four, Jesus said that he would return again to the earth to bring power and great. Or to, he would return to the earth in power and great glory. In Acts chapter one, at his ascension, when he floated away to heaven, the disciples were standing there. They were looking up into the sky, and two angels came and they said, "Men of Galilee, that Jesus will return." the same way that you saw him go. There's a prophecy in the book of Zechariah 14 that says his feet will touch the Mount of Olives again. That's when we know it's game on. He will return. But maybe the best picture of Jesus's return comes from the very end of scripture in Revelation 19. Revelation 19:11, 19, and in Revelation 19:11, John records a picture of what he was told this would look like. He said, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. That's the picture John was given. That's the picture John gives us when Jesus returns to the earth. That is a picture of a powerful, mighty Messiah. Now, with that in mind, I learned something this week about Christmas that's fascinating. There's a song that we sing, and I say we, I'm sure that you have sung it. In fact, we sang it to start our service, Joy to the World. Get this that was not actually written to be a Christmas carol. It was written about Jesus's second coming. It was written by a man, an English poet named Isaac Watts in 1719. And when he wrote it, he was writing his own paraphrase of Psalm 98. And listen to what Psalm 98 says. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. When Isaac Watts rewrote Psalm 98 in his own words, he wasn't talking about a baby being born. He was talking about a king who would return? that would make the mess of our lives right. And I don't know about you, but in a world that is swirling with not just bad news, with terrifying news, with awful news, with news that's so scary, I don't want to raise my kids in this world kind of news, we can sing joy to the world because we believe that he's coming again. And that is good news. That should cause great joy for all the people. So here's our challenge this Christmas. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you have confessed his name, if you believe that he is who he says he is and that he has done what he has said he has done, we have an opportunity. When the chaos ramps up, when the hustle and bustle wears us down, When we don't wanna go to one more place, when we don't wanna be with that person, when we are ready to pull the plug on the Christmas season, we need to agree to take a step back and to remind ourselves: the secret to finding joy during Christmas and in our everyday lives for the rest of our lives is to make our lives about a who and not about a want a what. Because that who came once in humility as a baby, but he promised that he would return again in power. And so the angels rejoiced at his arrival. The shepherds responded with joy when they met him. And we can live lives filled to overflowing with joy as we anticipate his second coming. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you that you have entered into our world. And it doesn't make sense. I mean, we treat you terribly. You give us the opportunities to obey and we resist. We have so many self inflicted wounds. We rob ourselves of joy. But your story from the very beginning, you said, I will send someone one day who will make everything right. Jesus, we thank you that you broke the silence in Israel all those years ago. You were born as a baby. In the most unlikely way imaginable to peasants, you revealed yourself to shepherds. And we thank you that by faith we believe that story is true. Every bit of it we believe is true. And 2,000 years later, would you help us to find joy when we sing songs that we would sing them Would you help us to remember you did not break your promise to Israel. You have not broken your promise today. Jesus, you promised to return. Would you help us to be faithful? Would you help us to be joyful as we celebrate a who, not a what? Jesus, it's in your powerful name that we pray.